This is Disaster Tales. Now we got it. All okay. Right. Well, welcome back to Disaster Tales. Disaster named. <laughs> Again. <laughs> I hate to tell you what kind of a disaster we have going on here. (laughs) Well, Susan, I hope you can hear us. If you can't, I'm going to try and find you right now. Mm. And so that's going to take doing this. All right. Go for it. Okay. So there's a book that was published called um, Psychic Forewarnings of Tragedy, written by George Behe, I think it is. And um, he wrote about several of these situations where people were um, were experiencing precognition or, you know, weird feelings or different things um, than they were concerning the Titanic. I'm sorry. I'm distracted. Okay. <laughs> All right. So with these precognition issues and things like that, there's... There's two, um, two different modes of thought. There's the skeptic, and then there's the believer. And um, so speak for a minute. <laughs> yeah, so there's, there's people who are skeptical of precognition and those kind of events. And then, of course, there's people who believe them. And there's some people who go out of their way to believe them. But there's a very narrow band in there where there are credible. Wait a second. <laughs> okay, where there are where there are credi- credible precognitions, and one I can tell you upfront personal experience is that my grandmother was in Cork before the Titanic left, and she went on a tour of it, and she got on there got a really bad feeling and just got right back off again. She didn't finish the tour. And she said she had something bad was going to happen to that, to the Titanic. And, and this grandmother is famous in the family for, um, (laughs) for knowing things ahead of time. She used to be able to tell when my dad was going to come home for dinner or not when he worked out of town, or she used to be able to tell when she had company coming her brothers used to try and surprise her and uh, come up from New York City without a warning. And she'd get up in the morning and say, well, we need to change the sheets and get the get some groceries because we're having company tonight. So She always knew. And she knew when Dad was sick. He had gotten sick one time at a party from eating seafood. And she was up all night long. And she called and she said, what's the matter with my Jimmy? And he had been <laughs> sick all night long from um, eating seafood. So, yeah, she... She had that. I think several of us in the family have also acquired that ability. So, a little, yeah. But not uh, a lot. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There's there's been times when things have happened with me that I've known things about people, which you know it is kind of odd. But anyway, so precognition, the uh, the the definition is foreknowledge of an event, especially foreknowledge of a paranormal kind. So. People call it ESP. They call it, you know, I don't know. They they may had names for it in the in the old days. You know, things like they got the knowing or things like that. So, um, but yeah, there's there's definitely been a lot of different things. There's one of the things that make it more um, believable or make it more verifiable is when someone writes the details down prior to the event. Obviously. People can look back and say, oh, you know, well, I felt this way or I saw this or, but if they actually write it down before the event, then it is much more credible and date it. Um, and so there were approximately in Behave's book, there were like 19 cases. Um, 10 of them kind of really leaned towards the precognitive um, model. Uh, there was a, a sailor named Stead, and he wrote a book. Um, I can't remember what the title of the book was. It was something about, I can't even think of it. But anyways, he was a sailor, and he wrote a book about an event that happened with a ship where they uh, didn't have enough lifeboats for the people on the ship. 
And so that was considered to be a precognitive thing. And the irony of it is that he actually signed on the Titanic and died in the Titanic disaster. So that one was a pretty compelling case for people with precognitive things. Um, and then, of course, the, uh, the book by Robinson, The Futility, mm -hmm. or, you know, the story of the Titan. The Wreck of the Titan. The Wreck yes. of the Titan. Mm -hmm. And that was a story that was written, what is it? It was 10 years before. 10 years before the Titanic mm -hmm. disaster. And it, it bore incredible similarities to the actual Titanic in as far as, like, the, the weight and size of the ship, the capacity of the ship, the lack of lifeboats that were available, um, all of those things. And his, his um, premise was that, you know, these ships need to make sure that they have enough life, lifeboats for people. So the length of the Titan was 800 feet. The Titanic was 882 feet. The speed at which the Titan cruised into the iceberg was 25 knots. The Titanic's was 22.5 knots. Mm -hmm. And the Titan held 2,500 passengers. The Titanic held 2,200 passengers, though both of them had a capacity of 3,000 passengers. So there's a lot of real amazing similarities there for someone who wrote this 10 years before. Right. Both, sh both ships were owned by a British company. Both ships were hit on their starboard bow around midnight. Mm -hmm. Both sank in the North Atlantic exactly 400 nautical miles from Newfoundland. Both had severe lack of lifeboats. The Titan had 24. Titanic had just 20. Both had a triple screw propeller. So the, the, the coincidences of this man writing this book and having the name of the name of the um, ship being so similar. Um, when he was asked later on about how he knew these things, he kind of just shrugged and said, "Well, I know a lot about sailing." So there was a, there was a lot of coincidence there, and a lot of that could have been precognition mm -hmm. because it was very similar. But the wreck of the Titan went on after the wreck, to where because it was a it was actually um, an Edwardian moral story. Um, the main character had a girlfriend. He turned into a drunkard. She left him for another man. She got married and had a child. So he was working on the Titan, and the woman and her husband and the child were all on the Titan in the first class. And when the ship sank, he saved his girlfriend's his ex-girlfriend's daughter they got on an ice floe with a polar bear and the polar bear uh came towards them and somehow in his racked and frozen condition he killed the polar bear he skinned it with his bare hands and put it over the child to keep her warm and finally someone saw them on the ice the, the flow the ice flow the piece of ice and um, picked him up and they took him to, I think, Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And then, um, so there was a big story in the newspaper about that. And during that time, he found out that the mother was still alive. And so he took the daughter up to New York to be with her mother. Mm -hmm. And so it did go on beyond that. But the first half of the book is so like the the wreck of the Titanic that it's it's incredible. Yeah, it's kind of chilling actually. <laughs> so there, I'm sorry. So lesson learned in that, by the way, is uh, don't be a drunk and hope there's a polar bear on your ice floe. <laughs> so many people thought from the very beginning that the Titanic was doomed. Many of them uh, changed their their tickets. They didn't actually fulfill their tickets or. They decided to sail on another ship, some of them because they felt like it was a maiden voyage and it wasn't going to be safe. Others just had a really bad feeling about it. Several people were very upset and stopped um, and didn't have their passage because the shipping company challenged and said, this is an unsinkable ship, not even God could sink it. And so they felt like that was blasphemous and that they didn't want to be uh, on that ship because it, they felt like that statement alone may have doomed the ship. Um, now, there's several categories that there's five different categories of, of precognitive or um, like cl 
classification for precognitive issues. The first one is incidents that are curious or coincidental. Then there's um, mysterious or mistaken accounts and hoaxes. Like there were some people who tried to capitalize on this disaster by, you know, saying that they were on the ship, that they survived, or different things that went on. There were phenomena similar to what I talked about with W.T. Stead, the author who wrote the book about the uh, this, the uh, sinking of the ship and not having enough lifeboats who, who actually perished on the Titanic. And then there were possible and probable psychic phenomena. So those categories were kind of it. The, uh, there, there was a lot of cancellations and no-shows. I don't know what the exact number is, but it was definitely a high number. Well, and I have seen studies that show, and I don't know if they're, they've been refuted or not, but they show that in, in a couple of days prior to a major airplane accident, the, the number of people that get on the plane is low. There's more cancellations, more um, no-shows. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I don't know if that was ever proven, but I do remember reading that at one point. Well, and I think that, you know, there are, there's compelling evidence for precognition in these situations. There's a, uh, one of the people that um, B.A. talked about in his book was a man named Emil Tussig, T-A-U-S-S-I-G. He wrote letters in 1908 and 1909 warning of the possibility of a Titanic-type disaster because of insufficient lifeboats. This thing will come to pass sooner or later, and Tussig died on the Titanic, as did Stead. Well, those are guys that didn't listen to their own advice. Right, right. <laughs> An employee of Arthur Newell, a prominent Boston banker, photographed on the Titanic in Belfast in 1911, died on the Titanic. And then there's, there's several different accounts of people who, um, in August of 1911, just before Alexander Robbins sailed with his wife to England on the Olympic, he remarked to his friends that he did not think he would ever live to see America again, and he and his wife both died on the Titanic. But comment uh, made by Behay says that this gentleman had already originally planned to stay in, in Britain and not come back to America. So it could have been that was his plan and it just took on new significance um, after the sinking of the Titanic. John George Phillips was the operator, the wireless operator, um, on the Titanic. And he told his friend at Christmas 1911 that he had a great fear of icebergs and that he would rather be on a smaller vessel than a big ocean liner, and he died on the Titanic. Um, 1912, A.J. Pierce uh, predicted that the course through the course of the year, a ship not far from port will sink with all on board, um, going on to say the ship would, and several people, the ship would sink, and that several people voiced hope that no mishap would befall the Titanic. So I think there was probably a lot of, that one's a little sketchy. Yeah, because it was any ship. <laughs> right, right. Um, many people regarded the postponement of the Titanic Sea Trials on April 1st, 1912, owing to high winds, as an ominous event. So they never went through the, the sea trials. Mm -hmm. They went directly into um, to, to, to shipping. Well, they went from Southampton mm -hmm. to Cork, so they right. had a little test route there. Right. But they uh, there, was, there was evidence that... Um, People, this, people had said that there was a fire in the coal bin um, on that starboard side of the ship and that they didn't get it put out. It just was smoldering. And even people said that there was like paint um, marring on that side of the ship where the coal bin was. It was in the number six compartment. And um, it, I guess eventually that was debunked, but... There were several accounts of people who said that when it was in port that they saw a space on the metal of the outside of the ship where the paint had had blistered off. Right. So, um, you know, and that there's a there's a lot of like unnamed people who de didn't depart because they were waiting for a tried ship, a ship that had already had sea trials. Um, they wanted to wait for the second voyage instead of the maiden voyage, which, I mean, I guess that makes sense. Um, the father and friend of Marion Grimm cabled his wife, telling her to cancel passage on the Titanic and take a later boat. And there was no excuse, no explanation or anything for that. Mm -hmm. But apparently he had a feeling about it. Um, 
So there's there's several. Even the mother of Mrs. George Vanderbilt declared the maiden voyage of any ship was dangerous and persuaded her daughter to cancel passage on the Titanic that she had booked with her husband, although their footman's reservation was retained and he went down with the ship. Behave classes this as a typical case of maiden voyage phobia, which is understandable. <laughs> you know, it's the first time out. Mayhust was uh, has nothing at all to, to add concerning the Vanderbilts and agrees with Behay that seeing this case as one of the conscious inter inference and classing only as one star or like the ba the lowest level of precognitive um, probability, I guess you'd say <laughs> probability. Um, yeah, that's why they t that's why they had test pilots in jets. Right, right. They. They tried the tried them first to make sure that they were um, going to be seaworthy. Um, Helen and Susan Fitzpatrick and their brother John drew lots to decide which shipping line they would travel on. Anchor line beat the White Star line, so they cast lots, and their lot came to survival as opposed to because mm -hmm. a lot of the people who were in um, the shipping, you know, like in the in the lower decks, didn't make it out at all. Not even made it and there was them. a reason for that. Yeah. So that's that's kind of the the um, there was a couple of poems that were written, um, one by Thaxter and one by Melville, and they portrayed um, a shipping disaster, which they said could possibly have been a precognitive type event, but you know it's 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 easy to see it afterwards and say oh yeah that must have been but unless it was really documented beforehand if jean dixon didn't say it. yeah well she wasn't <laughs> even around i don't think was she <laughs> you know the note then without the documentation it's hard to to say because you can t say anything after the fact right you know? but um so yeah it was kind of interesting to see the yeah that if there was a um if there was a a cognitive a cognition, I'm sorry, precognition. Um, it but seems she like was in, alive, then. in a lot of yeah, okay. <laughs> she was alive. But uh, we're look. I'm sorry, we're looking up Jean Dixon. She, she was, was only, alive, but she was only eight, eight years old. So <laughs> well, who knows, she couldn't maybe. do a lot. <laughs> um, several months before his death, Captain Smith had spoken about his bad luck at sea with businessman J.P. Grant. He felt that he had been jinxed and said he would resign if he had another accident with a liner. Behay comments that Smith intended to retire after Titanic's maiden voyage, although this is by no means certain. Mayhew suggested a series of accidents to Olympic must have weighed heavily upon Smith, who came to wonder in discussion with Grant whether the die was cast for him. He did not return to this vague and consequential story in part three of his book. He does not return to it. So Behay brought it up, but he didn't really focus on it too much in his book. That's right. And then there were several accounts, like mistaken accounts and deliberate hoaxes, where people tried to capitalize on it for fame. Or, I guess that really, though, for monetary compensation, there was very little monetary compensation for the the people who survived the the uh, disaster. That's right. It was it was like hundred dollars or something like that for some of them. Yeah, I think yeah. it was because I know I've I've watched an account of someone who had been in the hospital recovering and they came in and had them sign paperwork as a settlement without even letting them get out of the hospital <laughs> yeah know, they were barely conscious when they had to sign the paperwork so yeah that's definitely yep now there was um there's a book that's called it's right here and you can see by the cover it's very unusual um 160 minutes and it's by Hazelgrove. And this book is about the 160 minutes that the recordings of all of the um, wireless transmissions were made. It's, it starts at that point, William Hazelgrove, I'm sorry. It starts at the 160 minutes and counts down until the, until the boat actually sinks. And so a lot of the stories and misconceptions and just flat lies about um, the Titanic can be debunked because these transmissions were all recorded on, on in several different places 
by people listening to the wireless. Now, at that time, the wireless system on the ships was owned by Marconi, who, who invented, invented the radio, technically. And, um, Guillermo. And, that's right. And he had a, a monopoly on it. Um, he, had, he trained all the operators. The operators all worked for the Marconi company. Um, that included the on-land operators and the on-sea operators. Um, ships like the Titanic, because they, they could put up a huge antenna on the stacks, they could reach as far as two, 300 miles during the day. And at night, when the ionosphere was cleared, you could go, oh, skip. Yeah. you could, yeah, you could skip it on up to maybe even a thousand miles sometimes. So there's an account of a of a young man in Philadelphia who got one of the first reports of it. He was he was a teenager and he thought that radios were cool and so he'd listen in on the Morse code. And he was one of the first people that heard that the Titanic was sinking. Now during the time um during the time that uh before this event occurred the, there was, um, I'm sorry, there was, uh-oh, my brain stopped uh -oh, again. She's, <laughs> she's on a loop. Look out. <laughs> I'm on a loop. Okay. So, Marconi. Da, 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 da. Okay, so, in the Marconi office on the Titanic, they had an outage for several hours, and... So it was customary for them to send messages from the people who could, it's like a telegram, that could afford it. So they were sending messages to their friends in New York, telling them about how the Titanic was, telling them what business deals they were getting ready to do, telling them when they'd be there, things like that. Just basic communications. Yeah. Just, yeah. Banal communications. Personal chit-chat is basically what it was. And so after that, after that time um, that, that the wireless was out, when they finally got it back, they, the two men, Harold Bride and John, what's his name? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> um, um, both of them were just busy, busy, busy trying to catch up on all of these messages that mm -hmm. the passengers had sent out. And, and he actually had another, had another ship close by because all these guys knew each other, they were friends, they talked to each other all the time, and some of them had worked together before. And one of the ships had said, uh, was on the California, was giving an ice warning that they had seen icebergs in the area. And Bride turned around and said, typed back to them and said, you're, you're shut up. You're stepping all over me. I need to send these messages to Cape Race. And so they they finally got everybody else to be quiet so they could finish. But they were still getting ice warnings all day. Mostly that there was large ice fields ahead of them. And also the icebergs had been, had been sighted ahead of them. And so they gave these messages to the captain. One of them he put in his pocket and didn't look at for a while. Um, they gave Mr. Ismay, who actually owned White Star, um, he'd inherited it from his father, he, they gave him some of these messages, and he wandered around and showed them to his friends, and some of them got to the captain as well. And the Titanic was supposed to be able, it had, it had, had three propellers, and they were testing it up to... Um, I believe 21 knots per hour, uh, which was one of the fastest ships in the in the in the ocean at the time. A knot is 1.25 of a mile. Right. Yeah. So the distance of a, as a mile. So it was it was moving right along, and and Ismay and the man who had designed the ship were both on the ship, and they were talking about spinning it up as high as they possibly could. But they never, according to all reports, they never did get up to an extremely high speed. Um, another thing that happened in this, in this time was there was um, 
the guys that were the lookouts up in the crow's nest, normally the ship had a pair of binoculars in there. Well, for some reason in Ireland, the, the, um, the binoculars kind of disappeared. They took them off the ship. They didn't replace them. And so when the lookouts were looking in the dark for these icebergs, which you could kind of, the only way you could see them on a night like that was if you're looking out and you the stars suddenly disappear because everything was completely black. And if an iceberg came between you and the horizon, that's the only time you could see it. And if you had binoculars, you could get a closer look and have a little bit more warning. And so not having those binoculars actually was one of the contributing factors to the ship sinking. What you got? No, I was just looking up Phillips as the other wireless operator. Right, John. John George Phillips. Right. Phillips, yeah, Phillips died mm -hmm. on the Titanic. Yep. Harold Bride survived. Yep. Um, he had terrible... Um, frostbite. Frostbite on his feet because his feet were in the cold water while he was sending, sending the information out. And when he went to testify before Congress, they had to prop his legs up and his feet were the size of like bowling balls. They were huge, swollen. I don't know if he, what he lost of that, because usually when frostbite is that bad, you're, you're going to lose your toes. You may lose your foot. It's just, right. but I have not been able to find out what happened. Yeah. It's a, it's a sad thing that all of the warnings were ignored. You know, that's the, the number of lives that, that were lost in that whole thing. It's mm -hmm. just ridiculous because of a, a lack of attentiveness to warnings and just feeling invincible. A lot of pride there, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, was, it was a gigantic ship, mm -hmm. and, uh, and there, there was no reason for it to go mm -hmm. down. They had, they had an innovation where they had compartments, and when, if one of the compartments flooded, the doors would automatically close to contain the water in the compartment. Now, the tears, because there was actually a number of tears that the iceberg made, but it, it eventually just became one long tear. Um, the tears were over so many, over six compartments. So six compartments, they shut down the doors, sealed it up. The water rose up, and they had not taken the sides of the compartment all the way up to the ceiling. So what happened was when the first one filled up, it overflowed into the second one. And when that one filled up, it overflowed into the third one and, and that onto the sixth compartment. And so there, that was the mechanical mistake that nobody had thought of, that, that they would actually get enough water that it would fill up over the, top, the edge of the compartment. And what kind of a time frame are you talking about for the from the impact to the actual? Probably atmosphere. about uh, an hour and a half. Hour and a half. Yeah. It's not much time to evacuate that many people. And a lot of people in the lower decks didn't even have information that they had been, that the hull had been breached and that the ship was going down. Yeah, that's so, right. There yeah. was, um, <clears throat> the, the author of, of the book here, 160 Minutes, he talks a lot about the class system in Britain at, in Edwardian times, because this was the end of the Golden Age and the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. So there was still extreme class separation in society and on the ships. First class passengers had the best of everything. They had access to everything. Second-class passengers had their own deck to be on. And um, third-place and steerage were down in the bottom. And because, the way that, because of the way the Titanic was laid out, it was like a maze. It was very difficult to find your way through. Even, even people who had been working on it sometimes find themselves going, oops, I went the wrong way. I'll have to go back this way. Like most of the hospitals I've worked in. Exactly. <laughs> And so down in steerage, it was, it was such an incredible maze that people had trouble finding their way up to the upper decks, which they weren't supposed to do because they were lower class. And so when, when the, the Titanic occurred, when the, I'm sorry, when they hit the iceberg, 
everybody downplayed it. They wanted to keep everybody calm. They had, and the story from A Night to Remember, um, the story is that, you know, that they were, they were brave. They were, there was men who were sacrificing themselves so their wives could get on and their children and that everything was very well organized and civil. And uh, for a little while that was true. But finally somebody realized that the ship was going to go down. They went down and told the people in steerage. And those people had a heck of a time just trying to find their way up. By the time they got up there, nearly all the lifeboats were gone. And by the time they got to the last couple light lifeboats, things got really ugly. So there there was there was reports of people being shot. There was a, a verified report that um, a steward named Murray shot shot two people and then just killed himself, shot himself in the head. And there was shots fired to keep people from jumping onto the lifeboats. Um, so it was... Panic and pandemonium. But it was. Uh, and they talk about the band playing, you know, Nearer My God to the at the end. But there's different reports. Some of them say the band wasn't playing. Some of them say they were. But at that time, the water hitting the hot engines was blowing so much steam out of the stacks that it sounded like a hundred freight trains and you couldn't hear anything. Mm -hmm. So whether the band was playing or not, there was no way to tell if you weren't right next to them. That uh, community that I was talking about, it uh, was Adderghoul uh, County Mayo in Ireland. Mm -hmm. And there was a young woman who had emigrated to the United States and came back to visit. And when she came back for the visit, she told the people about all this wonderful opportunity that there was in the United States and so 14 men and women from Adderghoul uh, got on the Titanic, and of course they were in the lower uh, decks, and um, the the entire group perished in the in the, the sinking. And those the documentary that, that I watched was really was really sad because it was a very small community, a very tight knit community. You know, there was one from at least every family in the community. It was only a community of about 300 people, I think. And so it was just a tragedy, not only, you know, the loss of their children, their husbands, their wives, whatever, but uh, just the, the community itself lost this group of young people that um, was, was just horrifying to them. And then, of course, you know, a lot of the people that went down with the Titanic, there were no remains. They were, you know, commended to the sea. And so there was nothing to really give them that kind of closure of, of having a body to mourn or to memor you know memorialize and so it was it was a horrible blow to the small community and it, it that's just one story of you know the impact that it had in in communities but um just you know and the girl who who came home i mean her family was was devastated because she had encouraged all these people to come with them and they felt guilty about the fact that their daughter had done that you know so it's definitely a lot of human woe. Yeah, I've just posted on on Facebook if you're if you're watching on Facebook um, a picture of the iceberg that struck the Titanic. There's nothing there for scale, but it was it was huge. Well, and the thing is about icebergs, what you see above the water mm -hmm. is very small in proportion to the actual size of the iceberg, because what's under the water is much bigger. Right, but this did. This did hit above the water, right? But I'm just saying that the 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 size of the thing. Oh yeah, you know, judging at of it. Hence, hence the term "tip of the iceberg." Right, the tip of the iceberg, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there was actually people that thought it was cool that there was ice on the deck, so they went out and played around with the ice mm -hmm. and um, had a heck of a good time. But Our not for long. Good time. Yeah. Now, back to these operators, there was the boats that were closest to the Titanic when it sank were the Californian and, I have it here, the Mount Temple. Mount Temple. Now, the, the Californian was the uh, ship that John, I cannot remember anything, the name of the, um, not Harold Bride. 
Phillips? Yeah, Phillips. Thank you. That John Phillips um, had kind of sharply told him to Back shut off. up, knock it off. Yeah. And so he the the telegrapher on, on that ship, on the Californian, did. He quieted down and listened and w tried not to pay attention to the inane messages that were going out. Mm -hmm. And then at 11 o'clock, he went to bed because his shift ended at 11. And um, so they, the, the captain of that ship, they had gotten into the ice field. So he turned off the motor and turned on the lights so that people could see that where he was and they didn't run into him. And the ship basically shut down because they were going to wait until morning so they could see the ice before they went through the field, which was, it was safety practice. But they were, they were less than... They were less than 20 miles from the Titanic at the time. And they could actually see the Titanic. Um, but there was nobody there watching. At one point, one of, one of the officers on the Titanic looked over at the Californian and saw somebody looking back at him. And they had tried to send more light signals. They had shot rockets. And there was just nobody paying any attention to them. It says here that um, the um, Carpathian, the Carpathia, which is the ship that actually did come to the rescue of the Titanic, mm -hmm. that the operator, the only reason that he got the message is because he bent over to tie his shoe and he saw the he saw that the message was coming across or he heard mm -hmm. the message coming across. So that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, he yeah. only picked up the signal because he was bending down to untie. Something to untie his shoe, I think. Yeah, the other ship was called the Mount Temple. And the Mount Temple was about, I think, 40 miles away. Mm -hmm. And they got the distress, distress call because once they hit the iceberg, there was nothing but distress calls going out. They used um, the uh, abbreviation SOS, of course. And then CQD, which, is, which was a designator, CQ was... Um, for come quickly, or... well, they they said it stood for mm -hmm. come quickly disaster, but actually the CQ indicated that there was an important message, and the D indicated that there was distress or disaster. Mm -hmm. So it didn't actually mean that. Just like SOS didn't really mean save our ship. It was just a. Were it was they just even a, using that at that point? They were. They or had just started, just started using, using SOS, yeah. and so at one point they realized they needed to be sending out both. And they were sending it out mm -hmm. constantly. When they first sent out the message, so many ships answered with questions of like, where are you? You know, what are you doing? What's happened? That um, no radio traffic could get through. It was all just a big jumble of static. And one of the ships finally got a message through for all hands stand down so that everyone who would get off the radio and just listen. And the Titanic's was sending out its its message, CQD, SOS, and then it would give its um, coordinates. And so th there was people, they were trying to figure out who was the closest. And the Olympic, who actually did start to come and to assist, was 400 miles away. And so they, <laughs> there, so there is no way they were going to make it. And the Carpathia, when as soon as he got the message... He turned the ship around. He cranked the engine up. He had people making coffee and soup and putting out mattresses and blankets. And mm -hmm. they had a doctor designated to handle first-class passengers. They had a doctor that would handle second-class and another doctor who would handle third-class all in different places. Hmm. They moved all of the. They moved all of the people that were already on the ship because it wasn't completely full, into one section of the ship so that they could put the survivors into another place where they could be taken care of and watched and medically treated. So he was an on-the-ball guy. This guy really knew what he was doing. And his ship was, it was rated for um, 22 knots, and I think he actually got it up to 24 knots. And it took him, what, three hours maybe, mm -hmm. three or four hours to get there. 
Now, um, the Mount Temple was out farther than the California. And it got the distress call, and this captain started to come and save the people at the Titanic, which he did. And then he got to the ice field, and he stopped because he didn't want to hit. He had 2,000 people on his ship, and he didn't want to hit an iceberg. Well, some of those people were out on the deck watching, and they could see the Titanic. They could see the lights. They could see the rockets that they were shooting off. And they were begging the captain to go, you know, just go. It's not that far. It's like, it's like only 10 miles. Let's just go. And he refused because his protocol was that when you get to an ice field in the dark, you stop and you wait until light so you can see if there's an iceberg. So he stayed there for a while. And while the passengers were being put into their lifeboats, the stewards were telling them, you see that light? That's a ship. Go towards, row towards the ship because they should be coming towards us and they can pick you up. Well, as they were watching the ship, the light from the ship, it got, it started to move and it went farther and farther away and then it disappeared. So he actually turned around and got out of the ice field. <laughs> and it was at a point where if he had been able to get up next to the ship, that he could have got a lot more people out. Or the people in the lifeboats would have been pulled out, the lifeboats sent back, more people loaded into the lifeboats and brought over to the, mm -hmm. the Mount Temple. But that's not what happened, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And so they had to wait quite a long time for the Carpathia to get there. Was so, it was somewhat over three hours, I think. Wow. Well, you, they they say that the two heroes of this whole situation were Jack Phillips and Harold Bride, the the mm -hmm. wireless operators, because they um, did get some aid to come, and there were seven hundred and five people who survived um, or were were rescued. But um, there was a lot more than that on the ship. <laughs> yeah, there was, but they were they worked constantly. They actually hit. Mm -hmm hit the iceberg after John mm -hmm. <laughs> after John had gone to sleep. And when Harold Bride, when they hit the iceberg, he went and woke him up. And they went to the captain to find out what was going on. And the captain said, don't worry about it. But things started getting more and more. You could tell by the ship that there was things going on. There's a lithograph in one of the articles, the newspaper articles, of um, Phillips standing at the um, the telegraph table and McBride putting his life vest on him. Right. You yeah. Know, because the, he was so busy trying. He was sending messages to the Olympic, but he couldn't stop, so he was putting on his thing for him. Yeah, and it was, and it was over and over again. It was, you know, um, CQD, SOS. Mm-hmm. Position 40-something by 14-something. I'm sorry. I know that's wrong, but... <laughs> Longitude and latitude. He would he would give those out, and then he would give out the, um, the identifier for the Titanic. Right. Which was MGY. And you know how airplanes have numbers on their tails? Mm -hmm. and They're called N numbers. Right. And then ships will also have serial numbers on them. I mean cars have licenses mm -hmm. those ships had designators that were short enough to use on the radio so it was kind of like an n number for the ship right because that particular abbreviation mgy had nothing to do with the word titanic so it was just an assigned set of letters for them what else we got so the number of passengers who survived was 37% of the passengers, 61%. Uh, let's see. I'm looking for the total number. It had over 1,500 people that died during this disaster, and 705 individuals survived. So that's not a real good ratio. <laughs> no. Well, and here's... Here's the deal. At the, you know, they didn't have enough. Um, they didn't have enough 
lifeboats for the people who, to get into. There was just the number of lifeboats that uh, there were and the seating in them was totally inadequate to save everyone on the ship. But it was the legal number of boats that they were supposed to have in order to sail. That, according to the law, this was what they needed to sail, and that would be enough. Because the original thinking was the Titanic's A, not going to sink. B, if something happens to it, then there'll be other ships around that can come, and they can move people off of their ship until they make their repairs and then bring them back on. And also that they could shuttle people like some of the some of the boats had like a 42 person maximum. So you would take those people and put them on the ship. Somebody would bring the lifeboat back, pick up some more people, take them to the ship. Right. Uh, and so th the plan was not that they would have everybody needing a lifeboat because it was the Titanic. And legally, you only had to have enough to shuttle people back and forth. So it said that overall 1,349 men died on the Titanic when it sank. There's, in contrast, 323 men survived the Titanic. 97% of the first class females and children survived. Yeah. But in steerage, it was 25% of the people in steerage right. survived. Right. Because, A, the, um, they were doing women and children first. Mm -hmm. uh, they notified the first class people first. They were the closest to the deck where they were putting people onto lifeboats. And they were, like I said, telling women and children first. Um, a couple of times they'd say, are there any women here? And they'd say no. So one of the stewards would let people, would let men get in the boat. But by and large, it was mostly women and children. And a few men tried to sneak on. Um, there was a, a family where there was a husband, wife, a boy that was 13, and a little girl. And the woman took her children onto the boat. And the steward said, no, he's, he's a man, no men on the boat. And she said, he's only 13. And the rest of the people in the boat started to complain about it. So he let him go. But after he let him go, he turned around and said, no more boys. So they were really serious about only having women and children in those boats. So when they ran out of the women and children, because they would turn around and ask, are there any women and children here? And there, there wouldn't be. Mm -hmm. And so then they'd start to load the boats with men. And these were men from first class. And then the second class started to come up. And then after almost all the lifeboats had been gone, they went down and tried to get the steerage passengers out. And like I said, it was a big, it was a big cultural thing. It was cultural, but it was also difficult to try to navigate through which halls and staircases to get up to on one of the decks so you could get a lifeboat. It's sad. It's, no, it's sad <laughs> that the, that so many people had to perish because of, you know, pride and poor planning. But there are people who have survived. Rose, I think she's the one who the Titanic was written about. She died on March 12th in 1988 at the age of 105. So she survived the shipwreck. Mm -hmm. And um, the story of Rose and Jack weren't real. No, no. <laughs> but it's based on a true story, but they it was not the true story. So Right. Yeah, that was just a, just a way to take... Yeah, just two characters that would take you through the mm -hmm. entire event. Now, some of the things that were in the James Cameron's movie Titanic did were different than the original story and were true to the actual story. Um, for example, the people in steerage not being able to get out. There was there's one scene in the movie, and this actually happened to three Irish girls who were all named Kate. And they, the steward locked the gate so they couldn't get out. And they were begging him, you know, to please let us out, let us out. And then this big Irish man, big, huge, heavy, muscly, banged himself up against the, the fence and said, you let these girls out right now. And he, 
the steward was so intimidated by the guy, even though he was on the other side of the gate, that he opened it up and let him out. So there's lots of stories. There was one woman who um, forgot her hat, and she was in the she got into the lifeboat and then um, realized that she had forgotten her hat. And her mother always told her never to forget your hat when you go out in public. And so she went back and got her hat and came back and was able to get on a different lifeboat. But everyone was encouraging her, please, please, you know, don't, don't, uh, don't go back. But she went back and she was able to get on the lifeboat to survive. So fashion was very important in those days. Well, and two of the first class passengers actually um, took their Pomeranian and, the, and another small dog with them into the into the mm -hmm. boats in, instead of people. Well, they were little dogs. So I mean, it'd be one thing if it was a bull mastiff or something. <laughs> <laughs> a Pomeranian, you can kind of just fit it under your arm. So, <laughs> and they're like family sometimes. So, well, and if you've seen, if you've seen the movie, there's also a picture of these two elderly people who refuse to leave each other and they both stay mm -hmm. on the ship. And that came from the story of, um, Rosalie and Isidore Strauss. Now, he was a co-owner of Macy's Department Store. Right, which, like, Levi Strauss. Yep. Yeah. But he, but Macy's at the time was was the, the archenemy of Gimbel's in New York, so they were the two biggest department stores. And they were the ones, she and her husband were on the Titanic. They wanted her to get in a boat. She said, I'm going to stay with, I've been with my husband all my adult life I'm not going to leave him now and so they both stayed on there mm -hmm. and there were several famous people who passed away and perished on the um, on the Titanic big business people John Jacob Astor millionaire um, Archibald Gracie a historian and author has survived but there was a lot of people um, Stead passed away Noel Leslie uh, Andrews Thomas Andrews he was the architect of the of the Titanic yeah he actually went down and started doing a damage assessment immediately mm -hmm. and they also a carpenter voluntarily went down and started before he was told mm -hmm. to do damage assessment Ismay survived Ismay survived Ismay um, Joseph Bruce Ismay an English businessman who served as chairman and managing director of White Star Line he inherited that from his father who started the White Star Line or who purchased the White Star Line and made it into a large company. He was waiting by one of the boats and telling people he was kind of, I think he was kind of in some kind of a weird state because he was like obsessively saying, you have to get in the boat, you have to get in the boat, you have to get in the boat. And finally, as the boat was leaving he jumped into it and then you know didn't <laughs> wouldn't get back out again so he survived and actually was very thoroughly questioned at the senate hearing on the titanic when he got to the united states benjamin guggenheim he mm -hmm. perished he was a, a mining magnet and a magnate or whatever you want to call it and the, <laughs> the guggenheim museum in new york city is named after him mm-hmm um, George Denick Wick, he was a steel magnet. Um, oh, there was a lot of very wealthy people who wanted to be on that trip so they could say they had made the first mm -hmm. first crossing on the fastest ship. Yeah, Henry Harris, a Broadway producer. Mm -hmm. Carl Bear was a tennis player, but he survived. Yeah, so there was a lot of famous people because, like you said, it was prestigious to be on that maiden voyage of this, you know, unsinkable liner, but they found out differently. Yeah, that's right. So, sadly, by the time the um, Carpathia got there, and like I said, the captain of Carpathia, he was on the ball. He mm -hmm. turned him right around, sped him up, and started to get ready to take on people who were uh, need, needing assistance. Yeah. And by the time they got there, most of the people who had gone into the water had passed away. Right. And there were still a lot of people in the lifeboats. But I don't, I think that the primarily the, the people in the lifeboats were 
the only ones who survived. They did pull some people out of the water. One man jumped off the boat and was and came to a lifeboat and was holding on to it. Mm-hmm. And he was going to have them help him get into it. But one of the stacks, if you notice the Titanic had four stacks, one of the stacks fell and landed four inches from this lifeboat. Mm-hmm. So I think he, yeah, he had a little trouble and then he finally got back, finally got into the boat. Uh, the Titanic passengers were only exposed to hypothermia. They did not drown, technically. They, they passed away from hypothermia. Then after the fact, the cold water inhalation in the lungs was just after they had already passed away from hypothermia. Um, it doesn't take long. Um, the average time they were submerged in waters that were 28 degrees Fahrenheit, and you're likely to suffer hypothermia within the first 15 minutes. You will finally, you'll die um, within 30 to 50 minutes. So it was less than an hour. Yeah. The majority of those people that were in the water. Well, and it depended too. If you, I mean, mm-hmm. if you're wearing wool, you can right. you can live a little longer because wool insulates even when right. it's wet. If you were in your pajamas and a dressing gown. Right, which many of them were, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then, yeah, you yeah. didn't stand a chance. But the, the other reason that most of these people didn't drown was because they all had um, cork life jacket, jackets on. Right. It kept their heads above the water. Mm-hmm. And no matter what, you know, how cold the water was, they weren't going to, their faces weren't going to go in the water because of the way, the design of the right. life jacket. Yeah. Which, I don't know how how much benefit there is in that. If you're going to die of hypothermia or you're going to go under, you know, prolonging the inevitable may have been. Well, actually, hypothermia is um, is preferable to drowning because when you're hypothermic, you get to a point where... You just go to sleep. Well, f- first you get warm. Mm-hmm. And you feel warm, and it's, and it's because all the blood has been shut off in your body and 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 shunt, shuttled to the core your heart right. and your shunted to your brain thank you yeah <laughs> and yeah. and and so then after you have that warm feeling that's when you start to get sleepy right and then you you do you fall asleep now before you get to that point you're freezing your tail off yeah, and, and shivering and, and when you stop shivering that's when that's when your it's body, bad. Yeah, your body can't keep any more body temperature. So, so it's be, it was better to me. I would rather have hypothermia than drown, mm-hmm. because drowning in in the icy Atlantic was you were you would still be conscious when the water was in your lungs, and that doesn't feel very good. Right. So. So I mean, there was a lot of things that happened in the this process. There was a lot of you know, precognition by some people who felt like it was wrong to get on the ship for whatever reason or, mm-hmm. they, you know, decided to change their plans. But the people who actually did get on the ship, out of, you know, this only 705 people survived. Yeah. And, of course, a Senate hearing, even back then, was not unlike a Senate hearing today. Mm-hmm. They were trying to find somebody to blame. Right. And as they went through, they blamed... Ismay, they blame the captain for going too fast, but it turned out that he wasn't going. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was going too fast for an ice field, probably, right. but he wasn't going too fast. Um, the way that the ship was designed, it was reinforced in the front. So if they had not turned away from the iceberg and hit it head on, it was likely that it would have had a crumple zone in the front mm-hmm. and it would would not have ruptured enough to... To sink the ship, um, you know the captain was had been given ice warnings all day, and hmm. he he kind of just this didn't is, pay much attention. Right, and so there's there's not so much as there was errors as it was just a confluence of of unfortunate events. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a, a note here that says material scientists Tim Folk and Jennifer Hooper McCarty have cast blame on the more than 3 million rivets that held the hull's steel plates together. They examined the rivets brought up from the wreck and found them to contain high concentrations of slag. 
a smelting residue that can make metal split apart. Okay, so, so that was part of maybe part of the issue. Yeah, of the the rivets would pop out mm -hmm. because they weren't strong enough. Right, that's possible. But also there was tears. Right, they, they were. I mean, it was kids, like yeah. somebody took a knife into a watermelon and went. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I hope you like that image. <laughs> Let's kill the Titanic. Put a knife in a watermelon. Yikes. But um, that's pretty much how it went. Yeah. So there was plenty of blame, if you want to blame, to go along, yeah. to go around. But um, even the captain of the Mount Temple was, he was acting in the best interest of his, of his passengers. passengers. And he was going by the book. Yeah. Now, and he could have, heroically gone across that ice field probably without incident because he would he could slow down enough to see anything that was coming but he chose not to and he chose to take care of his his people and didn't want to risk his ship yeah so you know the takeaway from something like this you know you you realize that there are certain factors that are just set in stone that you know things that are just going to happen the way that they happen and other things, you know, that we can avoid or, or be forewarned maybe through precognition or a feeling or, you know, just putting together the odds of, you know, of what you're, you're dealing with. But it's important to just remember that um, we all are able to make the same kind of mistakes that these people made. <laughs> yeah, although maybe not on such a on such scale. a large scale, right? <laughs> like I might crash my canoe, right? <laughs> but not, you know, right. uh, and I wouldn't have lifeboats, so well, there you know. You go. <laughs> but I would have a life jacket. Mm -hmm. So, yep. Um, there's lots of information out there. We were trying to find information that was not in the general public knowledge and that was not in the movie titanic right because like i said the the other movie that was made a night to remember was made from a book of a man who only interviewed first class passengers and so he only got the story from the first class passengers right. and the story was very different for the second class and the steerage passengers correct yeah and the band and the band Band played on. The band was not playing um, "Nearer My God to Thee." They were actually playing um, playing classical music. By the time the the lower deck people came up to try and calm them down, but the noise from the release of steam coming from underneath the ship made it so you couldn't hear what they were playing, anyways. So. Anybody who anybody who is in a lifeboat that said they heard near my God to thee was it was in their head <laughs> because they couldn't hear anything. <laughs> well, the thing is, if you were close to them, you might have been able to hear something. But right, yeah, it says that they played near my God to thee. Yeah, well, that's that's part of the myth. Yeah. So, anyways, uh, we've probably done as much damage to this episode as we possibly could we sunk this baby yeah we did um but uh we'll edit it maybe we'll get some of the duh stuff out and and give you a decent a decent recording as with any kind of large-scale disaster there's ramifications in communities and families you know things that occur and uh you know it our heart goes out to people who have been through disasters, who've, mm -hmm. who've had issues like that. We don't make light of it. I know we joke a little bit, but it's definitely a very painful and difficult thing, and it lasts for generations, the effects of it. So, Well, one thing that they did was after that, the, the law changed about how many lifeboats you had to have on. You had to have enough lifeboats for everybody. Mm -hmm. Another law that came out was that there always had to be uh, a, a, telegra a telegraph operator, a Marconi operator, awake at all times on every ship. Right. So instead of having the one guy that goes to bed at 11. They had to work shifts all the way. Right. And so. There always is legislation that comes after, after the fact. Yep. <laughs> just, just like the Triangle Fire. And, right, right. You yeah, know. all those things. Right. 
so so things did improve mm -hmm. but uh, and like I said it was the end of the Gilded Age and not long after that people uh, the, the class system started to break down right and that's about it all right well, it's been enjoyable. It's been interesting. Yes, at least. It's and way more interesting <laughs> than we've been talking about. Yeah. These these books and I'm going to post the names and and authors of these books on our website. So, which um, has been redone, huh? Not yet. Not yet. Oh, <laughs> I started it, but I didn't yeah. get it done. There's been a few changes, but and I will also post it in in the the notes for the podcast. Mm -hmm. So, so disastertales.com is our our website. We do have a page on Patreon if you want to support our endeavors. That's right. We do have to buy books and things like that for research. Um, and, it, you know, we, we do enjoy doing this, and we explained to you last time the reason why we've been kind of lax. But hopefully we're back on track and uh, looking forward to another disaster tale next month. Yeah, and if you have any ideas, feel free to email us at kate at disastertales.com or barb at disastertales.com because if you have firsthand knowledge of a disaster, we want to hear it. Right. And if you have one that interests you, we'd like for you to hear it. So give us a holler and let us know what you want to hear. All right. Okay, so Susan? We're signing off. We're signing off, Susan. <laughs> So, thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to Disaster Tales. Our website is www.disastertales.com. Music by Stephanie Cerny. If you have a disaster experience you'd like to share, send it to kate at disastertales.com or barb at disastertales.com. Please leave us a review on your podcast provider. Be safe out there.